the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happier with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with today's episode, just want to throw out, we do have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Do consider throwing us a buck uh, just to help support the show. So today, Taylor and I are going to do something a little bit different. We're going to dive into, it's going to be volume one of Alan Moore's landmark run on Swamp Thing, Saga of the Swamp Thing. One of the most famous and I think beloved and maybe influential or praised comics in the history of, of comics and one of my personal favorites, definitely in my top two or three or four, depending on what I read. It's like Watchmen is always, it's always a battle between this and Watchmen. After I read them, I'm like, no, I like this one better. I hope everyone enjoys this. Talk to Taylor for a long time about this because I felt like at least it lends itself very well to kind of a Delezo-Guitarian type of a reading at minimum, but I think just broadly speaking, there's a lot of little psychoanalytic nuggets that we can get into with not only Deleuze and Guattari, but Freud and Lacan as well. And I think Lacan in the sense narratively, but also in the formal sense of, of the comic. So just to give people sort of a rundown, if you're not a, a huge comic book nerd, the Swamp Thing comic was kind of it was flailing and it wasn't doing very well and so i think at this time alan moore was not you know he hadn't quite become alan moore as we know him now he was on that trajectory certainly and so he takes over this struggling swamp thing comic and it's i think the nine he starts at issue 19 i believe and sort of wraps up in one issue the whole prior arc that the prior writer had been working on and so he's wrapping things up so he can take Swamp Thing in a totally different direction. You might even say like a deterritorialization of the Swamp Thing character, Al, you know, Swamp Thing being Alec Holland, his origin story being one of he was a scientist kind of doing research in sort of this field of like, I don't know, biochemistry. And there's an explosion. And the typical story is he's sort of becomes this mutant swamp-like creature, but he's He's ostensibly a man, and once more comes onto the scene and really gets going in the second issue in volume one of the saga is where we get a very famous episode called called the autopsy anatomy, the anatomy, the anatomy lesson. lesson yeah the anatomy lesson, which is again that's probably one of the most famous single issue comics in history, and that's the one that people always talk about, and rightly so and so Swamp Thing's kind of identity has always been associated with Alec Holland. Well, Moore undercuts this. He deconstructs this and says that effectively this plant thing or this pl the green 
which is sort of this, mm, I don't know what you would even call the green. It's kind of like all living green things in the universe are connected and they have an avatar. And so the green uses Swamp Thing, thinking it's Alec Holland as the avatar for the green. And then we have in this anatomy lesson, the character of Jason Woodrew, the Fluoronic Man, he performs a dissection of Swamp Thing's body, which is is really great, um, where he's cutting open the body, he's pulling out lungs and so forth and realizing, okay, these resemble human organs, but they don't have any actual function. They're sort of these, these empty signifiers. And eventually, because Swamp Thing is not an animal that can be killed necessarily, he he wakes up and escapes from this facility and then goes back home to Louisiana and he's just got a suffering from a just terrible identity crisis. I guess you would probably conceive of it as a very traumatic experience to have kind of your, all of your phyla kind of blown up at, at once. And so he kind of goes into the swamp to sort of, to sort of die and get reabsorbed back into the green. And then the Floronic man sort of wakes him up in a sense to kind of try to tap into Swamp Thing's connection to the green. And he does successfully do that. And because, and he sort of accrues all these abilities to communicate with, you know, the redwood forests in California and so forth. And he kind of takes this very eco-terroristic approach and is basically shuts people up in their homes and kind of terrorizes this whole town. And basically his plan is to super oxygenate the atmosphere so that basically any kind of, um, what is it, any kind of spark or flame or any kind of heat source would effectively just blow shit up, kill people, etc. And so he wants to basically eliminate all of humanity, all of, all of animal life, because they have obviously been, you know, there's a strong environmental undertone, right? And so that's sort of his goal. And then eventually Swamp Thing is brought out of his sort of trauma. I guess he sort of recapitulates himself and goes to battle the the Floronic Man and shows the Floronic Man sort of the error of his ways because the Floronic Man is kind of missing the forest for the trees and sort of missing the sort of interconnectedness of all living things with, you know, animals giving off carbon dioxide that plants need and et cetera. And so the Floronic Man was all about this, oh no, we'll just, you know, we'll just do this reign of terror against humanity and against animal life. And then the green can sort of flourish, but that's just a, you know, that's a very one-sided sort of thing. Does that sound like a fairly decent kind of plot outline? As far as I can tell, yeah, I think that that's, that's a good way to, to boil down some of the, the narrative elements. It does seem like the thing that I thought was interesting, right, is with the first issue, which is called Loose Ends, which, you know, is obviously, <laughs> you know, it's meant in multiple senses. And in the one sense that we have this new writer, Alan Moore, coming on and and taking over the role of, as you said, you know, finishing the first arc of, that was more of like a Swamp Man type right. of arc, where it was, where Swamp Thing and Alec Holland, the the scientist body that, you know, is blown literally into the swamp and becomes this monster, so to speak, this monster hero, this monster protagonist. You know, Alan Moore wants uh, to take that arc, as you said, to it in a different route. And so 
Swamp Thing has to die, right? In Loose Ends, and he, quote unquote, he dies. Well, let's just say, we at least we think he, he dies because he's, it seems like there's this, what, what would you say? Sutherland, he basically runs some kind of huge corporation that, that's, that's involved with what military industrial. Yeah. They're sort um, of a defense. Yeah. They're sort of a defense contracted element. So Sutherland wants to quote unquote kill Swamp Thing and he, and he, so he sets out all of these, you know, these, these, uh, these militiamen with flamethrowers and guns and, and they send helicopters at him and, and all of this. And they, um, they temporarily kill him. They bring him back to the, to the lab and they have him frozen because, and this is where Jason Woodrow comes in the, who already had, you know, an arc as, as kind of a, as a bad guy in the yeah. series. Yeah. He had been kind of a, I don't know, a tier, like a lower tier villain. Right. Um, and I mean, that's common of more to like take these obscure characters and really like do something interesting with them or take them in like a, a kind of cool direction. And so as, and, and, and Woodrow is a, as a scientist, right? He's a botanist, right? So he has all of this, you know, intellectual knowledge about plant life that, that even one could say Swamp Thing or Alec. Uh, well, yeah. I, I don't know. Did, did Alec Holland, was he also a botanist or was he more of like, because he was working on a specific type of product, if you will, uh, some kind of chemical for for this big corporation. Wasn't Holland like working on some crazy plant growth shit, some miracle grow shit or something? Him and his wife, Linda, are working on a bio-restorative formula okay. to deal with food shortages. Okay, that's interesting. So it's, it was, and, yeah. So I wasn't contracted under the bad guy Sutherland, the big corporate corporate. Um, I forget. I'd have to go back. There are, there may be like, because arcane, of course, and Anton arcane is, he's kind of the big bad in the, in the swamp thing universe, like overall. So his equivalent would be something like, you know, a Lex Luthor, a Joker. Right. Thinking in terms of other <clears throat> prominent kind of foils to, to superheroes, which is also kind of interesting that more is divesting from that kind of typical, good versus evil narrative as well and and right. sort of problematizing that as we'll see later on in the interactions between swamp thing and floronic man and even after the sort of big battle between them where swamp thing regains control or regains his status as avatar of the green as he tells abby arcane he's, the green is okay but i'm not sure what your people are going to do right so there is this kind of dual dual He's not necessarily on the side of humanity entirely, but there is a certain, he's sort of a more morally gray character in a sense in in that regard to where he's, you know, he's beyond human, he's inhuman. So he doesn't necessarily have all of those affinities that prior incarnations of Swamp Thing might. So, right. but he's still, I don't know, has a certain, I don't know what you would say, empathy. Or right. just maybe just the realization, like I said earlier, about the interconnectedness of all these ecological systems. It is this interesting thing that with more, something has to die temporarily, as I said. And then we have Woodrow come in. He's hired. He's, he's gotten out of jail by, by this defense contractor, Sutherland. And the whole idea is to study him, right? Potentially for... Yeah, because the they found, yeah, right, because they found out about 
the swamp thing. And so they were trying to recreate that. An army basically. of swamp things. Correct. Or something yes. like that. Yeah. And they even right. dig up Swamp Thing's wife. You know, there's this discussion between Sunderland and, and the Floronic man, Woodrow, about his wife, Linda, had been exposed to the same chemical, obviously. And she was killed shortly after, I think, this accident with Alec. And But nothing occurred to her. Like, she didn't become a swamp creature. So that's why they brought in the Floronic man to kind of study this and figure out, okay, what's the deal? How can we sort of recreate this process and utilize this for some type of military application. Yeah, so as as Woodrow is, is studying the swamp thing in the cryo chest, it's frozen, he, as you said, the anatomy lesson, that, that next issue is, um, you know, as you said, it stands alone and it, it tells this, this interesting story where we learn that, uh, we learn this interesting theory that based on, and I assume it's a fictional idea but this idea that scientists had taken planarian worms right and and taught them how to run mazes and then they cut up those those worms and feed it to other worms that haven't run the mazes and those and somehow that knowledge that uh, that so to speak that consciousness is passed on right and so Woodrow has this epiphany that that in fact this swamp thing isn't Alec Holland like we think, like we've been told. He's not, it's not a human that became a monster, right? It's, it's a plant monster that has been infected virally with Alec Holland's consciousness in a certain kind of magical way. And it, so it's a plant that imagines and thinks it's, and believes it's a human. Right. So, so Swamp Thing recreates not just the form, so to speak, a giant form, but a form of, of a human, but also creates all these organs. And as we see, you know, he's removing these organs, he's removing the heart and being like, well, or the lungs and, and the kidneys and the brain, and none of them, they all resemble human organs, but they don't have any function. And right. in fact, they are completely edible. And so we see... In that sense, when I was reading that part, I started to think just in basic terms about how Lacan defines the imaginary. And he'll define the, the ego, at least in part, as fulfilling an imaginary function. And by imaginary, he doesn't mean in the sense of, in any sort of basic sense where it's, where it's ideation, but more of this world of images, right? This world of mirror images, this world of, and what, and, and, and he goes back to Freud and Freud kind of hints on this. And although Freud never uses the, the, you know, the, like the, the RSI of imaginary symbolic and real it's Lacan who wants to say that if we look at Freud, the ego, the first thing it takes, it's we take our own body as the form, the imaginary form, with which to engage, we kind of carry that around and use that to make sense of of these other relate these relations with others. Right. And so it's interesting that the yeah. swamp thing is, and that's why I think it's important that that moment where you know Woodrow has that epiphany about the planarian worms, like the swamp literally ate Holland's, we could say his ego. Oh yeah, that's good. And yeah. instead of instead of Holland sort of being superpowered by either the bio, obviously the bio restorative has a, has a function, right? It's kind of like the, you know, the, the radiated spider or whatever, you know, there's always that kind of little nugget right. of 
transfer catalyst yeah yeah a little catalyst right but this idea that the swamp is infected by by an ego by a human consciousness and then around that literally remembers the a human body right but it's and so Woodrow writes all of this down in this report and of course you know by the end of that of the anatomy lesson issue we see that the swamp thing has woken up, gotten out of its cryo chamber, has found the report and has read. And I think that that's partly where the traumatic yes. kernel begins. And we see this new arc come along because not just we as the readers of the comic, but the, the swamp thing itself now knows that it is, it is plant. It is plant imagining itself as human, that which was it's kind of like, um, and, and then to use another term like Lacan, it's, it's like that's, that's the castration moment, right? Is realizing you lost something you never had. Uh, yeah. Oh, right? This, the dusting kind of vibe. Yeah, exactly. So there's this, he's having to give up losing a humanity that he, that he had clung to and had thought that the one thing that kept him from being pure monster, at right. least, right? Symbolically, yeah. so to speak. Having that, having that sort of in his back pocket, this potentiality to be restored as a full human being again, right? Right. If he has, you know, through science or through magic or whatever the case may be, right? Yeah. Just if somehow he, and this is where the moral gray stuff comes in. If somehow he, through you know superhuman heroic actions and and moral goodness, could you know regain his humanity, but. It, he's not a he anymore. It's just, it's just a thing, right? That's, I think that's, that's, I think that's the interesting thing that, (laughs) that, that more takes literally Mm -hmm. this, this notion of being, you know, being a swamp thing, not a, not a swamp man. Right. That's a good, uh, that's a good pickup. That's a good call. I like that a lot. So I, I guess that the, I guess that the, the interesting thing too, about the traumatic, knowledge that that also infects him virally Mm -hmm. i mean like he his reading of the doctor's notes that that you know that dissected him realizing that none of his organs you know are are functional they're they're just imaginary they're just um you know there's these crude knockoffs it's a it's kind of a bad joke right and he learns that i keep saying he right but swamp thing learns that he has become plant and that, that he kind of always was planned. And, and, and yet there is this, there is a struggle and we see in some of these dream sequences and in, in the next issue in issue 22, we see in some of these dream sequences, this, um, this kind of tension with coming to terms with losing humanity or regaining humanity and, and all that's, that's involved with, this past that 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 even if he only vaguely remembers it, it still is that is. I mean, so I guess it's, there's two kernels like right of of repression. There's that kernel of repression of remembering being Alec Holland before the explosion due to this sort of viral implantation, not the pun of of consciousness, but also then coming to turn coming to grips with that never never having been true always having only merely been a desire exactly and i apologize for my dogs (laughs) that's like the monstrous core of swamp things identity and and you said it right there is an identity crisis that he begins to to go down 
Anyway, I'll let you, I'll let you kind of come back. I know that for me, there's a certain, I feel very, I've kind of identify with this, having sort of your identity kind of blown up in this very traumatic way in the sense of my background growing up in like a small Texas, you know, on a, on a cattle ranch. And so having every, all these sort of set signposts to, to sort of construct my identity on as a white male, America patriotism, like America is the good guy, all these kind of, you know, hokey corny ass beliefs that I kind of sort of had constructed my identity around for probably, you know, up until I was really into college before I really, really started to sort of deconstruct it and have that kind of chrysalis broken. And, you know, I think I'm still recovering from that. You know, I don't think I've ever fully been able to piece myself back together entirely. Like there's always, there's always something escaping. And so I think learning to be more comfortable with that the way that Swamp Thing is and the way that he right. takes this more holistic approach to, to living and being and becoming, et cetera, is something that, you know, and I didn't even realize this until I think this morning I had this idea. I was like, you know, wait a minute, this, this is very reminiscent of my own experience in life of totally spending 18 years with this whole paradigm that was very stable. There was, you know, everything was stable and situated and there was a God and there was good and evil and there was justice and et cetera, right? And then just kind of having that all blown up extremely violently and then trying to pick up the pieces and, and move on and become something new and, and different. I don't know, something I very much identified with. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that the on the surface, it would seem like the most appropriate discussion of the anatomy lesson when Swamp, when we see Swamp Thing dissected and we see that his organs are not, uh, have nothing to do with his, well, basically with his life drive, right? right. He, insofar as, as you said, he's the avatar of the green, you can't just shoot a plant in the head, right? Yeah. It's something that they say, and that's not how you, that's not how you kill a vegetable. And okay. It would seem that the most appropriate then would be to say, oh, body without organs. I think it's actually better with what you brought up with Lacan talking about the ego as fulfilling an imaginary function or standing in or representing in this play of an imaginary function. It's and always it's always a dismembered body. It's always a partial. Yeah, right? it's always a kind of a partially aggregated body. Now, the imaginary also plays a role in fantasy, if I remember correctly, right? I'm pretty sure yes. that that's where fantasy largely lies is within the imaginary realm. It does, but it's obviously in a whole different, it's a whole dialectic of desire and it would be, you know, in relation to, um, yeah, I, th I mean, fantasy, other... fantasy in the Lacanian sense, not in the, I think what the, like the colloquial sense of fantasy right. that you might think it's a little bit more nuanced than, than that. So yeah, this, this notion that, Swamp Thing is not is not a human, so it's there was never a unity to lose, you know, as we said, kind of right. There was never this this humanity to cling to. That itself is is a kind of a, a fantasy or an effect of of this primordial fantasy that he has and sort of wanting to get back an identity that that he isn't and that he doesn't have, right? That is definitively dealt with in these first two issues. Is that I'm curious as far as and Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm thinking of this like in terms of lack, you know, being a lacking subject. Is that like an, is lack kind of an a priori type thing for Lacan? Well, it is for, you know, it is for desire. It okay. is for... And for um, Lacan, desire is lack. So yeah, it would be sort of this a priori type. It's also for, you know, for being. He has, at least in the early Lacan, he, he definitely at times speaks in ways that reminds me of how Sartre you know, wants to think of 
the in itself and the for itself, right? And consciousness being uh, kind of sort of based on a non-being, right? And propping itself up on that. And there's, so there's something similar here going on, right? That sort right. of at the kernel of, of Swamp Thing's identity and, and the identity crisis that he undergoes is this non-being of Alec Holland that, that he's been basing his being on. And that, that lack gets taken away from him, right? It's like he gets too, he either gets too close to it or it becomes some, suddenly it becomes full. It becomes full of whether we call it illusion or, or just becomes, it's not, it's no longer tenable as a source from which to draw that drive and that desire to even persist because now it's just, it's just a charade right now. He's now that, that authenticity has been, Yes. ripped away from him and has been revealed and unveiled to be shown to just be this nostalgia for this lost origin right and and that's why what and, and so to get back to the narrative story that's why it's interesting that we see after he has killed the guy that wanted to he <laughs> wanted to uh use him to to make an army of swamp things after he fittingly gets his revenge, he goes back to the bayou in Louisiana. And what do we see? We see that he begins to literally put down roots into the swamp and try to... Totally dissolve his subjectivity back into nothing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. To become, it's not becoming monkey, but it's, right, it's becoming, I don't know, we'd have to come up, what's the clever word for plant monkey? Well, you could could call it becoming imperceptible because it is this this drive toward non-being. Yeah. It is this drive to undo the thing, the thing that he is, the thing that it is. He wants to no longer, and I will keep saying he, you know, Swamp Thing wants to no longer exist as a separate entity that that would be an avatar to sink back into the a sort of oneness or unity. Yeah. But that's blocked off on the other end, right? He, so he can't be a man. And he can't be one with the swamp. Mm-hmm. He is a, he is a thing out you know outside of the swamp, yet of the swamp, right? Right. He is the surface effect, and he can't and he can't find Nirvana by sinking back in precisely because, as you said, Woodrow, um, who is this tertiary nemesis, this tertiary bad guy, a very at, good foil too for Swamp Thing as well, right? Because he's kind of the he's the reverse mirror, but I'll let you finish. Well, I, and I think that's great. And hold on to that thought. I was just going to say that because I'm still building a little bit of the narrative to make sure that the sure uh, audience is following us. So Woodrow, as as the botanist with all the knowledge, who has learned the secret of Swamp Thing, is able to. We see this moment, this interesting kind of pseudo cannibalist quasi cannibalist moment where he eats one of the the organs right he eats a kidney of a swamp thing we see his eyes light up right that he has this idea that he can he can literally eat the essence of swamp thing or fuse with it and become this other swamp thing right this this counter as you said this reverse mirror this this foil to swamp thing and he takes on the power of the green and that is what wakes swamp thing up from this torpor from the slumber that he's been trying to to reach he's been trying to reach this nirvana and at the heart of the green suddenly there's this eruption we could say like the eruption of the real but he calls it the red it's the it's the something something red 
has entered the, the mind of the green. And that is Woodrow, who, as you, as you very, I mean, you say it very well, Woodrow has these terroristic ambitions. He believes that he yeah, has like a Leninist almost kind of vibe. He, to he, it. He, he takes himself to be the advocate for all of the green. And he th- believes that their desire and their wish for him is to, as you said, destroy all non-plant life, right? All other organic life, which is the red, which is meat, right? Which he's, he's trying to get, he's trying to destroy the meat in this eco-terroristic way. And that for Swamp Thing, the reason why that feels so foreign is because that idea itself, that drive and desire itself is... <laughs> yeah, it's is, antithetical it, to... Well, it's antithetical to green. It, it's, it itself is red. Right. That, that, yeah. own, that own self-destructive drive exactly. and desire is right. precisely the red in yes. the green. And you, you know, we, we, you and I have spent hours and hours talking about life drive and death drive. <laughs> I mean, don't necessarily need to go over that here because it's precisely you see in so many different forms of plant life in like perennials for example that that the life drive and the death drive are the death drive is just like an optimal limit right mm-hmm. the flowers are going to come back you know it, given oh that's like a maybe even libidinal ban kind yeah. of vibe to it right and but 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 obviously reproduction of of animal uh life it, it takes place a little bit differently and it has you know and then we get back into this question about imaginary about egos and so it is is this paradoxical thing where swamp thing had to have this ego death alec holland had to die for for good lest you know um precisely for swamp thing to take this becoming this this new arc and in this first volume and in these seven issues that's obviously only beginning we don't really see where he will end up, um, we're, we're kind of just seeing the escalation because he's, as I said, he's kind of cut off on two ends, the two solutions of becoming human or becoming, becoming inorganic or becoming, you know, just full organic, right? Just becoming swamp without the thing <laughs> that's cut off to him. And I think that that's, that's why he maybe is gray, right? As you said, instead of green, he has a, he has a grayness to him. I think that that fundamental ambiguity of, his function as monster and hero at the same time, right, is is part of the the power of this this character. Interestingly, later on throughout the run, he does discover more abilities that so he can sort of he can appear anywhere where green exists, even out in space. Like there's a there's like a planet swamp thing, at least issue later hmm. on and towards the end of Moore's run on this series that's kind of interesting which it's it's built on throughout because i think in the next volume is when he can sort of he starts to travel throughout the united states in this fashion of basically materializing his physical form can materialize anywhere where green life exists and so more sort of builds upon that and builds it and it gets to a crescendo i think with later on with planet swamp thing which is kind of an interesting whole arena to to go down but i think to back up in terms of pluronic man and the He's the mirror of Swamp Thing because he's a man that wants to be plant and is sort of almost already this hybrid plant himself, but not fully. At his core, he is still part of the red. He's meat. He's man. Yes. But he even has this, it's funny, it's really funny kind of 
consumerist capitalist kind of idea of this spray on skin. Because yes. I guess he's so plant-like in terms of his appearance that he sprays on this phony skin to make himself appear to be man. So that's the reversal for Swamp Thing. The plant that is pretending to be man yet is still plant and Woodrow is the man who is who is plant <laughs> but is still man. All right. That's such a kind of mirror, funhouse mirror, like dialectic or whatever between those two sides right. of this thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, we see in the dream sequence about how, you know, he's having this, basically this fever dream sequence as he's basically lost the will to go on as he's facing this identity crisis. Swamp Thing is entering into this deep slumber. He's having these horrifying images of you know, his wife in the, in the bridal gown and losing her and having to choose between keeping her or keeping his humanity. And, and we do see that one of the fever images is, is him putting on a, a mud suit as though the swamp thing were just a suit that he could take off and on at will. We see that play out with the Floronic Man, as you're saying, right? That the, the Floronic Man has this sort of adhesive spray that that sprays on skin for him right as 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 he as he needs it which is which is his own way of of taking on the human skin as though it were a suit to put on and take off you know swamp thing that that is obviously there's a wish fulfillment in the in that dream image of swamp thing wanting to be able to take off the suit right and, and be alec be holland cool, yeah. at the core at the center and that being an impossibility that being precisely what he now knows is could have never happened. And, Foreclosure on that whole right project. Yeah. So so that that to me is um, and the other thing that's really important is that the first issue, the very first panels of that of of issue twenty of Loose Ends begins with Swamp Thing seeing his ultimate nemesis Arcane dead. He finds the body. And he sees that he, that Arcane is dead, and so there's a. I think that's really important to to think about in terms of again this this drive. Why why go on? Why not be dead like Arcane? If Arcane the arc the, the arc enemy is dead, what is? It's the Joker scene that you brought up earlier, right? It's it's you know Batman needs Joker, you know to to have to have a meaning, if right. you will. Yeah, exactly. For, for Gotham, just as Swamp Thing needed Arcane as this motivation to to do good by the green for the green and potentially for the you know the way he beats Woodrow is um is showing that there is this you know this ecological balance of animals and plants and there is the cycle that goes on between the oxygen and the carbon dioxide and so getting rid of all of the animals potentially is is also self-destructive to the green and that shows the real origin of that that self-destructive idea as being red because the green is not it it's not trying to wipe out all other life forms in its expansive growth it's really trying to reach an optimum yeah exactly. rather than a maximum and i think that that's where the the difference lies but yeah i guess that's the thing is it's interesting that his arch nemesis dies right before he dies temporarily and gets captured and put into the cryo basket, the cryo casket, you know? So when he wakes up, figures out he was never Alec Holland, 
now he doesn't have an arch nemesis. I mean, that's another reason just not to go on. And he, right. he, he and so, so yeah, he's, he's like, well, I guess the world doesn't need monsters anymore. Right. And all the monsters have been hunted down, been researched, been experimented on and sort of brought to the light. And um, the swamp is part in part, its principle is in part a cultivation of darkness. And you see already in that notion of is humanity going to leave, you know, the swamp, even, even a sliver of darkness to, to, to proliferate in anymore. You see in that, that ancient age old dialectic of darkness and light, you, you, and you see, you see the same kind of thing play out in some of like Foucault's analyses of how knowledge works, right? Knowledge, power, and, um, you know, bringing everything out into the light, there is a kind of violence to it. And so we have to be wary about, about sort of thinking in, as you said already, thinking in these, these old binary Manichaean terms of good, bad, good, evil, darkness and light, that, that out of the darkness of the swamp, there could be something at least morally ambiguous that, that yet has a, a meaningful impact, potentially a, a beneficial impact on on humanity. I mean, he, that's, that's his interesting hero, anti-hero crux, right. right? It's yeah. I thought that kind of approach to, I mean, that reminded me so much of kind of Guattari with his sort of ecosophy philosophy that's sort of, you know, in the three ecologies, I didn't get a chance to go through it thoroughly to really, you know, draw something from that. You might be able to fill in on that angle, but I think just sort of this, realization, the integration of these different systems of whether it be human production, humanity, plants, and sort of eroding those sharp distinctions between each of these. And like, you know what I mean? Kind of cutting them up and with signifiers and trying to build this stable identity for each of them. That's kind of what came to mind, I think, especially with that line about this realization that Swamp Thing, you know, uses to kind of, con I guess, to really rest back control as, at, or control would be probably too aggressive, rest back his position as avatar for the green and just recognizing that more holistic approach in these systems as opposed to this sort of, oh, man, you know, those sort of Western phallus, phallogocentric, you know, man has dominion over the animals and, and so forth and is the... Yeah, the, the three ecologies, I mean, what I would say... Just to add on to what what you were bringing up here, you know this this notion of unprecedented harmonies between the psyche, the the social, and the environmental in ways that don't merely rest on resurrecting an old body, an old social body, or or, or resurrecting these archaisms. I think that that's where I would go because for Guattari, he tries to root out nostalgia where he sees it he, of all kinds and the the kind of compromises that come with what he calls neo-archaisms and there's a sense in which you know we see that with the traumatic kernel of Swamp Thing discovering that he is all plant and that this deep-seated as I said, virally implanted desire to, <laughs> to become human ego is an archaism. It's a, it's a, it's a holding on to, to this, this, this origin story 
I mean, to talk about cutting up with the signifier, right? It is, it is that signifier that's removed from the field and that orders all the other ones for him, right? And gives his, his life a kind of structure, the, this life beyond life, beyond life and death, that gives him a structure to, to cling to that kernel of, um, of Alec Holland's subjectivity, and that's taken away from him, right? That's, I think that's where the fever dreams come in as indicative of what Freud and Lacan talk about when they talk about the psychoses and, 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 par- and delusional paranoia, with, particularly with, with Judge Schraber, for example, right? This, you know, Judge Schraber goes first into this intense becoming woman that opens him up to all of these forces from these cosmic forces, these you know, these theurgic forces, and they animate his, not just his personality, but his, his, his lived experience. And there is a sense in which those fever dreams, and, and he'll say it later in the, in the, at the, I think it's at the end of 26 or 27, one of the last issues in this volume, where he mentions briefly about, he mentions briefly about being, being afraid Right, Swamp Thing mentions being afraid of something. I'm trying to remember what it was. It's towards the very end of the of the volume. He said, uh, "I saw fire once. I knew someone who died by fire." And he says, "I was afraid. I was a little afraid." You know, he's obviously thinking back to to Alec Holland, and yet he knows now at at this point in his you know, his return and in, in, in this point in his knowledge, he, he understands that that fear too is alien and yeah. yet it still inhabits him, right? It is the thing within the thing, right? It is, it is that kernel that animates his, that structures lived experience in a meaningful way for him. Which Jeff, like, I think recalls my own experience as well, in a sense. Go on. Just in terms of I having sort of the intellectual knowledge that, you know, your sort of origin or like this whole sort of chain of signification that goes back to this non-existent beginning is kind of is like the realization intellectually that that is a, a fantasy, right? Right. It's still even that realization is not enough on its own to really radically push you forth. There's always it's almost like the real kind of always is sort of seeping back in in the corners of that can right right in like your process of becoming and sort of there still is the, the it's the ghost it's the spook the specter of of the beginning of the origin of this fully being full within like not being a non-lacking subject being part of whatever universal spirit or what have you right that chrysalis, right? That sort of full, you're fully encapsulated. Everything is whole. There's no partialness. There's no cutting of the body up. You're in sort of this, this womb, this cosmic womb of like where everything is stable and secure and warm and you're right. getting fed, right? You're getting fed food and water and you're comfortable and having that broken and realizing that it was all just a fantasy, but there's still that the desire remains, right? The unconscious desire to be complete and whole and full a fullness is still always one battle that you have to kind of keep fighting and like trying to work through or past or whatever. We do see that he, even, even when coming to know that his organs are not functional, he can't be killed. He's not a he, right? <laughs> he's not, he's not Alec. And yet he still has these relationships from, right. 
from before that time. And one of his closest friends, at least in these issues, is, um, is Abigail, this witchy woman. You know, they, I mean, there is a sense in which Abigail is kind of painted as this, this center, this gravitational center that focuses supernatural, unnatural phenomena, the uncanny to her, right? <laughs> she's got the white hair. She's, and it's not because she's old. She's always had white hair, right? She's this right. beautiful, you know, white-haired damsel in distress that he, that partly, partly she functions to give him orientation to the drive towards doing good, towards having something to protect. Yeah, yeah. Beyond the swamp, which is, which is, you know, it's hard to represent fully. So she kind of represents a, a type of supernatural mystic, you know, I, witchy is, is the word I would use. I think that she's at least wants to describe her, like that the kids, the kids always called her like crazy Abby. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. also they would call her like a witch. Am I wrong? I, I think it's something like that. I feel and like so, there was a, a callback to some type of people being born with white hair and sort of right. this anthropological discussion of how they were sort of shunned as... Sure. As well. Yeah. Yeah. So she, she's like the center of gravity for all of these unnatural, uh, supernatural um, occasions, mostly bad, it seems. To, and part of it is obviously to give us a monster of the week for Swamp Man to fight. Swamp right. Man. <laughs> Swamp thing. But, you know, at the same time, I think that's why they See, have even this, you want to slip back into. Yeah. This, <laughs> this, this anthropological model. Right. right. But I guess this is where I was going with that is that they, even though she's married to this husband who, you know, at the end of the story, he dies, but he'll come back probably as, as, as a supervillain, you know. Well, no, he, he doesn't, he doesn't die. Matt's, well, he, Matt's he, alive. he doesn't die, but he becomes forever changed, right? Right, yes. Anyway, so she, she's got this husband that she's ignoring, so to speak, because he doesn't seem like a good guy anyway. Right. And they seem to have a kind of, Swamp Thing and, and, and Abigail seem to have this relationship that's both, it sort of transcends it's, this sex sexual. It's both vibe. erotic, but it, but it, but as you said, it transcends it. Right? There's, you know, they they still they, they they seem to have this intense friendship that would be erotic if Swamp Thing if if plants had dicks, right? But they don't, and he's coming to deal with that, right? So so you see it, you see the libidinal ambiguity in their mm -hmm. in their relationship and their friendship and. I guess that's that's one of the things I was going to say is that that's where partly the anthropological mindset seems to be toyed with in front of us, right? Both that Swamp Thing has an attachment and affection for Abigail that can't they, they can't merely be related to lust, right? Or friendship, or whatever. There seems to be some kind of she herself seems to have unnamed and unknown unclassifiable supernatural powers of, of her own that you know can't be put into words just as her husband can't find the words to say how much he loves her right there seems to be something about abigail that is itself in its wildness like the swamp can't be qualified does that make sense yeah absolutely i almost want to say is she sort of an Objet A in a sense for the reader, maybe not Objet A, but I think there's something, there's a fantasy element to it in terms of the audience. Well, she's the beautiful damsel in distress, as I right. said, but 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 that trope gets played with and yeah, and and kind of turned on its head too. Yeah, 
you know, and she does seem to enter into these dangerous situations that call for Swamp Thing to, to help her. She's unnaturally, well, she herself has this nostalgia for wanting Alec Holland back. It doesn't seem to process very well that the Swamp Thing never was Alec Holland. Yeah. But that, that was all a kind of, as you, again, this, there's constantly this, there's constantly this, again, it's the traumatic kernel, but, but here it's more of a, a traumatic kernel of knowledge. There's constantly this, this hollow, this, this non-knowledge that itself is playing the mirrors. And, and so that's one way to look at the objet. And, and I think that, that she does play partly that, that objet, that little residue of desire to go on for him after, after he is definitively given up. He knows he's not human yet clings to it. And she's part of that persistence of this idea, right? That again, as I kind of said, it's, it's described as, you know, the swamp kind of ate Alec Holland's consciousness, his ego, you know what I mean? And is housing yeah. it. And yet, you know, and, and yet it's, it's partialized and dismembered and, and sort of dispersed and completely alienated. And so she kind of functions as, as one of those mirrors because she herself seems to be the representative of whether we call it the repressed, right, on its female side and Swamp Thing is the id, right? Or if you want to just toss her up categories, it, it, none of it sticks, but it can be fun to kind of play with these. Right. Because to a certain extent, Swamp Thing is to the return of the repressed, proliferating in the dark. It's precisely her non-translatability, I think. Because the repressed, for Freud and Lacan especially, neurotic repression, right? Through symptoms, whatever, it's always able, it's always potentially able to be translated. And that doesn't necessarily end analysis and the work of analysis, but that's, that's, that's one of the key crucial steps, right? And obviously that has to go through for the talking cure to be effective, goes through transference, et cetera, right? The analytic relation. And so there is- Transference there is, is love too, right? Like how, right, how appropriate is, is that in the sense of Abby and Swamp So thing? I do think that, yeah, I do think that Abby and Swamp Thing have a kind of transferential relationship and yet neither of them, you know, it's not a formal one, obviously. Swamp Thing isn't the one supposed to know. Neither is Abigail, even with all of her witchy powers. <laughs> they both are in this ambiguous situation of neither of them being the one supposed to know, neither of them being a, like a, a supportable, suitable candidate for being, you know, the other in the big O sense, right? They're both, they both lack that. And it only seems to come about as Moore kind of points out with these two other minor characters at the very beginning of issue 20 with um, Elizabeth Tremaine and her husband or her boyfriend, Dennis, where they, where they seem to only, their relationship seems to hinge upon constantly being in danger, constantly being in crisis, constantly having these terrible things happen to them. And there's something about Swamp Thing and Abigail that that's how their relationship keeps them so cohesive, keeps them so tied together, is precisely this unending- Shared traumatic. Yeah, shared this traumas, right? always being in, in the situation where there is an immediate external conflict that is threatening either the green itself, right? Or life itself with Woodrow, which is why that arc is so interesting, right? Using Woodrow being able to tap into all the plant life, at least temporarily, and mobilize it 
in this eco-terroristic way, or, you know, some of the other incarnations of fear and these other things that become enemies for Swamp Thing and for Abigail, right? Their, their friendship seems to hinge upon this external danger, right? This external situation that's, that's constantly, you know, filled with adrenaline and filled with, filled with the possibility of death, right? And that's, that's like Hegelian spirit, right? Which abides with death and that's when it's truly doing its, its work. To that end, I, I want to read a little bit from that just the initial issue and it's where this is where Swamp Thing is, discovers Arcane's body and interestingly is sort of cradles his deformed and very monstrous looking remnants in a, in a very, like an allusion to, to Yorick and, uh, and Hamlet as well, I think. Sir Yorick. Very on the nose, I think, and, and especially the way that you can see in the comic itself, the way that he sort of cradles Arcane's chin is interesting in its approach to these are supposed to be adversaries, right? But it's kind of, he's kind of deconstructing that dialectic. And I think it's to set up this later on foil. Like he's kind of, Moore is very, always very skillful about being able to put these little, he's pl- always planting seeds of something that's going to kind of pay off down the road, right? And he's always coming back to these little, He's he's got this like circular spiraling motion where he's kind of coming back, but in a different way. And I'll read this so you can kind of get a feel for this because I think it, you find itself later in the book as, as sort of another... Woodrow becomes... He fulfills this role, in a sense. You were my opposite. I had my humanity taken away from me. I've been trying to claw it back. You started out human and threw it all away. You did it deliberately. We defined each other, didn't we? By understanding you, I came that much closer to understanding myself. And now you're dead, really dead. And what am I going to do now? This is beautiful that he's saying his arch nemesis arcane deliberately gave up his humanity be- to become this monster whereas for alec holland because here swamp thing still thinks he's alec holland yes. that's just been superpowered by the right. swamp right and so he's he's saying like you know you gave it up willingly mine was taken away i'm trying to get it back and that does set up that it, and, and so now he doesn't have that that you know he's cradling the the head not just like Sir York, but also like a baby, right? Which right. is his own, you know, his own um, dead self, if you will, right? As he's, uh, yeah, his own dead body, his own Right, humanity. so there is this mirror um, relation um, as he's cradling his arch nemesis. And this is preparing him to discover that, you know, the humanity was never taken away from him. It was, all, it was always already gone. Yeah, that nice dramatic reversal. And that's what I mean where like Moore's very skillful about setting up those dramatic reversals, which are really enjoy the payoff, the jouissance of the payoff is always very, he understands that I think very well in terms of his, his writing. And you can see that in a number of different ways in the book in these callbacks to the planarian worms and the dreams and so forth, right? They say, you know, we left you the best part, the human. <laughs> yes. Right. Which is just a, a skeleton. In the fever dream, that's what the planarian worms say. We left you yeah. the best part, humanity, or the you know the human. And before I forget, too, in this little scene, these scenes with Swamp Thing and and Arcane's corpse, you can kind of you can't really. I'm kind of inferring a bit here, but in this in this panel, so there's one where Swamp Thing's kind of cradling Arcane's skull and very kind of like in a very in a sort of tender way, right? And then he even, it almost presumably looks like he's sort of doing the kind of cliche of closing the eyelids of the fallen 
comrade almost. Yes, yes. The comrade in arms movement that he does. Wanted to point that out. As you can kind of see here in this in this panel that I have up. But again, just to go back to how Moore is sets up these little moments for Joissant's in the anatomy lesson, and we talked about this last night. You have Woodrow talking to Sunderland, who Sunderland is just the pure. He says, you know, I'm not smart. I'm shrewd. He's not smart. He's shrewd. That's where his abilities lie versus Woodrow, who is the intellectual, which I think is kind of interesting too, because you set up this very, it's a lot murkier of a picture with Woodrow as not fully, Woodrow has a bit of gray in his own and in himself there, right? Because there's something more pure about, maybe that's being too, maybe I'm being too pious here to say that he has a sort of pure desire or a more pure desire than Sunderland, right? Because Sunderland just doesn't give a fuck about being shrewd. At least Woodrow is doing, there's knowledge, right? There's a, there's something, it's not just material for him. It's about something that's bigger, I think. Yeah, that, that's right. Sort of kind of surface level acquisition game or then power outright, even though he sort of goes in that direction. He is also a foil in a sense of, of Sunderland's in that respect. You do see that Woodrow's drive to knowledge makes him, pushes him to a point where probably because of this antagonism between he and Sunderland, as you said, so he's not, he's not intelligent enough to understand the scientific data and basis for why Swamp Thing is what it is. And he doesn't care. All he knows is it, is, is it can be manipulated. And can right. be that's, exactly. why he's, that's why he's a multi-billion billion dollar CEO of, of a military industrial corporation, of a defense contract corporation. Whereas, you know, so he just wants to, he just wants to know if it works, does it work? And can he manipulate it? Can he press right. a button? Exactly. And make, and, and, and make an effect appear. So that's, he's the embodiment of the appropriation of science, right? By the, whether it be by the state or literally a state contractor, you know, whereas Woodrow is making, is driven by the, perhaps by this dismissal of knowledge to cash in on that knowledge in a in a Faustian way, right? He makes this bargain. He incorporates the swamp into himself. One could say, I mean, that's how he's a foil again for Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing is, Alec Holland is blown literally out of his house into the swamp, right? And, and the swamp incorporates his ego, his consciousness, his memories. Whereas Woodrow is trying to kind of in this unholy bargain, incorporate a piece of the swamp into himself right? in this bid for, for power. Right. And I think that that's where the corruption lies. Power with a, he has the righteousness. He has the fantasy of, of righteousness in his own little narrative. And he has this fantasy of self-hatred, this, that too, this anthropomorphic self-hatred, this, this mis, misanthropy. We see it building in him before he, before he takes on this, this unholy transformation, eating part of the swamp and trying to take on its power. Um, we see that he has this disdain for other humans, for other for other meat, and partly that comes with him having this weird relationship with his own body, as you were pointing out. I mean, I assume that his use of the adhesive skin that he puts on comes from a prior arc. This is why he's called the Floronic Man. Right. Yeah. I'm I'm not schooled on the 
on the well, it doesn't matter so well, but he has yeah. this weird relationship with his own body yeah right where he has to constantly reapply this fake uh, spray on skin in order to remain human and that that itself is this is this traumatic kernel of of having to keep pretending to be to be meat when he wants to be plant he wants to become plant but we see that with with swamp thing first of all that's not necessarily it's like a type like, of dysphoria right sure yes and one can't choose to become plant right it's like we see the consequences of that desire and, and that that desire itself is a foil for these these ulterior schemes for wiping out you know all the rest of of wiping out you know bodies in general bodies apart from the the green mass you know this architecting of of the destruction of, of blood i mean i think that that's the connection between woodrow and Aragon at the end of the of this little volume, Etrigan. It, it's this fact that they both have, a, they fetishize blood, right? On the one hand, Woodrow wants to eliminate all blood, wants to eliminate, wants to return to sap, right? And 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 eliminate the red, eliminate the meat that he himself is a part of, whereas Aragon is powered by, by blood and fueled by it. And that's the one thing that Swamp Thing, we know he doesn't have organs. He also doesn't have blood. And if he, if, if Swamp Thing has blood, it's fake blood. It's, it's non-functional blood. If there's a functionality to the, to the fake blood in the system, it, it'd be, again, be more akin to sap. I think one of the things, one of my favorite moments is, you know, we see Woodrow, he's transformed. He's gotten all these powers and he's able to mobilize plants to destroy potentially the earth, right? But he starts small. He starts with a little town in Louisiana called LaCroix, right? And, and he starts there and there's all kinds of carnage and he has someone film it, right? And he wants to, he basically is, you know, he's, he's got his terrorist message to all of, well, humanity, but it's, it's threatening all, did, all animal extinction. Did you, notice and, the, did you notice this that I thought was, you know, you mentioned Foucault earlier. It was kind of ironic that, this is where Floronic Man has shades of gray in a sense because what are the first three institutions within La Croix that he takes over? The school, the church, and the police station. That's right. And I think yeah. I think I did those in reverse order. I think it was literally the police says, station police, first. Yeah, police station, yeah. school, church, maybe. Yeah, that's right. Which I thought was quite an interesting little. You know, Moore is definitely a subversive. He has affinities with with anti-capitalism, broadly speaking, right? So well, I thought that was kind of an interesting. It's a it's a brute deinstitutionalization of of the social body, right? It is this the symbolic superstructures are the first things that have to go, right? And, and so that that is part of the terroristic destratification that Woodrow threatens. It's like this is like a type of bio Leninism as well. Uh, kind of funny because that's always applied to, you know, the trans, transhumanism, transsexual. Right. But. Yeah. And so he, he's, he's trying to destroy the, he, he destroys some of the infrastructural bases of, of the social body to already weaken, because that's part of the, the strength of, of the meat uh, of the animal, you know, the world, the symbolic scaffolding, you know, the law in those three institutions. Names of the father. Right. Yeah. So, and then Swamp Thing appears and wants to fight him, right? And he like, he approaches Woodrow and Woodrow's like worshiping like a god. And he's like, oh, you know, you're- Hey bro, you, you, we, we'll share power. Let's come we'll, hang out, let's have a beer. Yeah, <laughs> let's destroy animal life together. And Swamp Thing, boom, punches him right in the face. And Woodrow calls him a traitor. He's, 
He's a species trader. He's a he's a plater, he's a trader to plants. And Woodrow, I think he basically like summons a giant thorn and like pierces Swamp yeah. Thing's chest. Which is and, and in itself, Swamp, right? What is that well, kind of getting towards, right? Sure, it's phallic and all of that. But I think it's funny that what Swamp Thing says, and this is what I was getting to, one of my favorite things. He says, he says, fight me like a man. Yes, yes. And I thought that that's interesting that, that even though he has gone right. through, worked through this, or part of the tra- trauma of not being man, not right. being Alec, being being the thing in the thing. <laughs> and, there's always, and see, and this is what I'm talking about, like in my own experience, there's always that little surplus. It's that, well, it's that little, well, you can, you can call it Abjaya. I mean, in terms of our analysis, it, it fits. But yeah, it's that little, that, it's that kernel that he's holding, that he's still holding on to, right? The kernel of repression that saying, fight me like a man, and Woodrow's like, why, why would I, why would I, first of all, I was like, why would I do that when I have all this other power? But also it's, it wouldn't even be to fight Swamp Thing on his own battle, battlefield because it's, it's no longer his. That's still an imaginary piece of armor, you could, you could say, right? I mean, part of the humanity, it's represented in the dream as the skeleton remains mm-hmm. that he doesn't have. And yeah. yet it's more like an exoskeleton imaginarily that, that, that protects him from this, from this abyss, from gotcha. this lack okay. of subjectivity, right? right? It's, it's, it protects him. It's really like armor for the little kernel, the little viral kernel of, of consciousness that if he never was the body of Alec Holland, there's still a sense in which the swamp ate Alec Holland's memories and consciousness at whatever his identity, his subjectivity, whatever you want to, whatever terminology you want to use there. Mm-hmm. I think that that's the interesting thing is this tension between the plan imagining itself as human, having a human body, whereas the real kernel is the limit between the symbolic and the imaginary, right? This position of subjectivity that's never there where we think it is. And that's why this yeah. play of mirrors is, is fascinating and why it borders on the threshold of that which can be articulated. You know, if we want to look at the, the panel you've got here and talk about it a, a little bit, I think that there's, this comes close to articulating the tension in Swamp Thing towards its identity, whether human or transhuman or imaginary, etc. The context of this panel is it's Matt, who is Abby's husband, and they've just had a conversation and Matt has sort of revealed that he's been having these kind of these visions that have sort of haunted him but he's sort of he's telling her that he's overcome them and he's putting on this sort of air that everything's fine and like he's quit drinking and all of this stuff and then both of which are lies right exactly and so he's still delusional he's still he's still self-medicating exactly he has this moment this sort of soliloquy to himself he says look i just want to want you to know that i love you abby I just want to tell you how, how much, but I don't have the words for it. I don't have the language, and language is capitalized there. We used to be able to tell each other things like that without words. I know the drink messed up a lot of that, but well, I'm through that now. And the drink was obviously just a symptom. I mean, I'm in an armchair yeah. and I analyze them. The drink was just a symptom of that, that break that they're going through and the, the separation that is already there and it's just yeah. being covered over barely by both of them. Right. in their own way she yeah. going off to have these this desire to track down swamp thing in the swamp you know him going home and trying to literally vegetate right <laughs> trying trying to literally forget the kernel of subjectivity 
that he's always had, even though he never was it, right? It's like, flip that, right? That he always was, but he never had, you know, something like that, right? There, there is this, this constant misrecognition, right? As, as Lacan would call it, misrecognizing his deformed, monstrous human body as human, or misrecognizing that the way to overcome the traumatic knowledge is merely to vegetate and to, and to return to inexistence, return to, return to swamp without the thing. <laughs> to forget the thing, to repress, literally to repress the thing. And, um, and I think that with Matt here, Matt, get, you know, he's, he's able to articulate something about not having the language to put into words this erotic relationship, this relationship of love, this failed transference, one could say, not having the, the words to put that into articulate it. I mean, that itself is this struggle between not necessarily between the conscious and the unconscious, as Freud will say, because Freud will say it's better to talk about less a conflict between the unconscious and the conscious than between the ego and the repressed, right? And there's something here that's meta-articulating repression in, in its return or in, its, in the flesh, right? That not having the words to say how much he loves Abby. And I think that's the same, I mean, with Swamp Thing, you could, you could say the same thing that, except that that's not the problem. That's almost the problem that's avoided in their intense relationship that he develops with Abigail and their friendship. There's a moment where they act like they are a couple. Do you know this moment I'm talking about? She's hanging out with him. The, the Woodger has been defeated. There's no monster of the week currently. It's, it's on the horizon, right? With the monkey king who feeds off of children's fears. Mm -hmm. But right at the moment, there isn't... She's telling him about she's landed that job at the... Yeah, so school she's... For the autistic... She's swimming, in the, she's swimming in the lake or the swamp or whatever. Yeah. And he reaches up and grabs her leg. And, yeah, her foot, yeah. And she makes the joke. She makes the joke about, you know, can we can we play another game than Creature of the Black Lagoon, right? Making fun of their, of this, obviously this enjoy, the enjoyment that they, they get from being in each other's presence, right? She's, she's, she's mocking it as though, it works as a joke because it, it acknowledges their libidinal companionship. It's erotically charged. And yet, so it tells the truth in that sense, but then like immediately reinstantiates the repression because he, he apologizes, right, as, as though he had done something wrong, as though he had offended her. And of course, she's just, she's just making fun of the, it's an absurdity that's, that's come to light, right? That they're yeah. this, quote unquote, that, because throughout the, the issues, Abby never feels fear around Swamp Thing, which seemed to be the most rational. Yeah, emotion, right. <laughs> it seems to be the most rational thing of all, to, to feel that his that swamp thing's presence is uncanny right yeah exactly and yet she feels more it seems like part of her because matt's not the only one that's having visions we see abigail depicted as potentially going crazy right as potentially uh, you know always already in in the midst of some kind of paranoid delusion and so when she when she's when she is with swamp thing which is 
what is it Lacan says, like what has been denied access to in the symbolic returns in the real, uh, yeah, right? Okay. Something like that when he's talking yeah, yeah. about paranoia and psychoses. There is a sense in which like Swamp Thing is that eruption of the real, you know, for her. And yet precisely because it has, because it's a calculated eruption, because it can exist in this supernatural world, she feels most at ease and most, I would say, least anxious to right. have another psychotic episode or another yeah. delusional episode. Right. Right. That, that the incarnation of the monster itself in the flesh prevents it from haunting the, uh, the other registers, like the imaginary, like her constantly having to double check and make sure that she hasn't lost her mind again. You know, right. Crazy Abby. I had a, another reading on this too, where this, where Matt saying, you know, I, I don't have the language. I can't, you know, I don't have the words. Interesting. And this is where I was talking about earlier with more, I was always planting these seeds for payoff and jouissance down the line, because I was thinking about this in terms of the full, the lack speech being lacking, right? Speech is not full and so forth. So there's always some, right. There's always that lack in the symbolic. Right. This gets brought up that I think, I don't know if this is intentional or not, but we'll, it calls back to later on in the course of the, the Woodrow narrative to the point we, you know, we had discussed this, but the justice league gets involved prior to Swamp Thing sort of being woken up from his his little death sleep or sleep of death is that the Justice League ha is effectively powerless against Woodrow. And they mention there's the character of Raven who is an empath and they say, you know, Raven is as an empath, perhaps she can reach the green because the humans can't communicate with the green directly, right? There has to be some kind of intermediary and that's sort of perhaps where Swamp Thing serves his purpose as Avatar to be that bridge between those those worlds or what have you. And she says, well, I can I can reach the green, but I can't understand it. Yes. And again, it's this failure of language in both counts, right? The, the sort of the incompleteness of, of speech, the inability to communicate fully with the other or what have you. I don't know. That's kind of something that I thought was kind of an interesting callback that reminded me too, I didn't even finish my point earlier about how within just the structure of the anatomy lesson, how you know, there's a conversation with Sutherland where Woodrow says, you don't have the right background in terms of discussing the science with him to sort of really get the real juicy detail is that Swamp Thing is not a man. He's not, he's not Alec Holland. That's the kind of thing that Woodrow immediately captures. But in his own shrewdness and short-sightedness, Sutherland doesn't really grasp that. And then later on, there's a callback to that because Woodrow is sort of in his apartment, right? And he's having a glass of wine and he's thinking about Swamp Thing escaping and kind of narrating this, the scenes of Swamp Thing escaping and presumably killing or at least severely injuring or he does something to Sutherland, right? I assume he murders him. Yeah. There's that message or that callback to something about not having the right background. He said, you would have, know, you would have known this if you had the right background or something. Right. Yeah, the smugness, Sutherland's smugness in his power without knowledge that comes to bite him in the ass. There is a, you brought up, you know, the slumber of the deep sleep that Swamp Thing enters upon his identity crisis. 
and he's woken up by by Woodrow, who has entered the the green in, as his foreign body, right? And um, Swamp Thing says, Woodrow, he took my humanity away from me, caused so much agony. And when I thought the agony was over, that I'd found peace, he tainted that as well. They wouldn't let me be human, and I became a monster. But they wouldn't let me be a monster, so I became a plant. And now you won't let me be a plant. <laughs> God, that's good, right? Yeah, so that kind of shows this this working through of these different mirror phases for Swamp Thing, right? This putting on these different these different garbs, right? This, these different shields, these different suits, and knowing that you know there is no inside outside, right? Or that's that's just a function of the swamp itself is you know to exteriorize itself without an interior without any sort of interiority right with this like hollow hollow subjectivity uh, interesting going on that point so there's a discussion with Woodrow and Sutherland here about Alec Holland's wife Linda that I thought was quite interesting too along those lines and he would we figured it may have permeated her cellular structure just through the repeated skin contact so we dug her up and we had some people run around a little and you know what or dig around a little and you know what we found nothing <laughs> yeah i mean and that's there's a sense in which even though swamp thing's body in the cryo casket being dissected and it being full of these organs you could say the same thing that there's literally nothing inside him because all the organs are meaningless they have no function ex outside of this intense desire to to regain the humanity he never it never lost this is a really good passage here that sort of is Swamp Thing kind of when he's in his vegetative state in the uh, swamp and he's talking about, I think he says red, red things happen here the or bad things happen here. The world eats your wife, eats your friends, all the things that takes all the things that make you human and the world keeps on going, keeps on eating. I couldn't take that being eaten. I couldn't take the red world. So I walked out. Yeah. And it's precisely Woodrow who's, you know, the one dining on Swamp Thing's organs that don't have any function. And yet, symbolically, he's, he's taking on the same powers that he, you know, he says science has proven about the planarian worms, right? He's, 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 he himself has to become worm before he, be, he can become this other plant swamp man. I guess that would be the thing. Woodrow is, is a swamp man and not a swamp thing. <laughs> and that's precisely where... Oh, that's good when he is confronted with that knowledge, that itself is what impoverishes his power. That's what, you know, depotentializes his, his hold, his grip. It's kind of sad too, once after their encounter, whenever Swamp Thing, you know, stops Woodrow and Woodrow, I'll read this because I think it's just, I don't know, there's a sort of tragic, you kind of do, there's a pathos actually. Yeah despite Woodrow's terroristic behavior, there is a certain pathos here because he says, talking to the green effectively, don't leave me, I'm your friend, I'm Woodrow, please, you know me, please, it's shrinking, it's going away, I can't feel the trees anymore, and the grass, where's the grass going? Gray, so gray and dead, and you, you must stay with me, just you, that's all I want, please, I'm so lonely, there's a hole in my head as big as the world, and it's so very lonely, please, please stay. And then he's, the last little panel is Woodrow just sobbing 
over this with this little orchid in his hand, perhaps. Or not an orchid, I don't know. That's maybe a lily. It might as well be an orchid. Right. <laughs> right. You know, the, the orchid is the Greeks named it orchid because it its parts for them look like male testes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's it's kind of interesting if it were an orchid. Phallus, yeah. Yeah, he's looking at the this he's been castrated from from the green, you know, with too much knowledge. Right. Again, this is why he's a, he's a Faustian character, why he has that tragic element. He falls from grace. You know, it was it was too much too much knowledge, too much, you know, all too human knowledge that ruined him. And then of course the Justice League come and they carry him off to Arkham. <laughs> right. Which is I forgot to ask this earlier, but do you think that faciality can you kind of explore faciality through this, all of this with Woodrow and and Swamp Thing in terms of, does that have any, that felt somewhat like it might have a, be a way to kind of explore that in those characters, or am I, am I off? Specifically how Woodrow uses the spray, although that's not quite. Well, yeah, I mean, after, after he has transformed into the plant man, he tries to put, put the human body back on with the spray. He tries to put his face back on and it's, it's horribly. Yeah, it doesn't. Disformed, doesn't disfigured. Yeah. It doesn't stick anymore. You know, he tries to have it both ways or he tries to revert back and give it, give it up, but he's already, he, you know, he's, he's gone too far. You know, I, I mean, with faciality, it's obviously the play of, you know, the white wall that bounces off the signifier, right? So you got the mirror stuff that we've already talked about and then the black hole of subjectivity. And I think with, you know, with Swamp Thing, he does have a face, and there's no reason to have a face except we could say again it's it's this false function of the uh, of the plant imagining it being a man and so that that's really the only function of the face of swamp thing is to be an like a like an obscure or opaque mirror right that the the white wall is now the, the green wall <laughs> but it is anthropomorphized at least you know, and that helps our own imagination as as readers to be able to to see some of ourselves in him, as as you kind of pointed out. He's not just an amorphous mass, right? He has anthropomorphic features, but again, that's I guess that's the thing that his face is no longer a, a good candidate for everyday facial encounters. Except for someone like Abigail, right? Who has, again, to get back to it, who has this witch, this magical type of aura, this magical essence, and who is not, who is almost calmed by that lack of human faciality, or at least that uh, kind of parody. It may not be the right word, it's unfair, but you get what I mean. It's um, Swamp Thing's, you know, pseudo-faciality, literally, right, is a, is a kind of calm for her precisely because she has supposedly seen such monsters in, in human form, right, that the, that the Swamp Thing monster itself is, right, yeah, is much less of a, of a monster than, than the humans. Especially right? with mean, her father being arcane in mm, particular, or uncle, I forget, what the, I forget what their relationship is actually is it could be father or uncle but i think this little passage that i kind of inserted from chaosmosis is sort of perhaps relevant to here no existential approach has priority over another 
Thus, it's not a question of a causal infrastructure and of a superstructure representative of the psyche or of a world separated from sublimation. The flesh of sensation and the material of the sublime are inextricably interwoven. Relationship to the other does not proceed through identification with a pre-existing icon inherent to each individual. The image is carried by becoming other, ramified in becoming animal, becoming plant, becoming machine, and on occasion becoming human. I can see why you would like that passage for. <laughs> I mean, obviously there's the surface level becoming plant, becoming becoming human, right? But I think the I think the main thing that that he is bringing here, one of the main things he's bringing here that not only builds off Lacan but takes him much further in the the ecosophical, if you will, reign that Guattari is, is coming, is that line that relationship to the other does not proceed through identification with the pre-existing icon, right? It's not that, and Lacan necessarily, not necessarily would have said that. He would have obviously said that it's the mirror phase that we all have to go through, right? And, and that's coming out of the other side of the mirror. We're in this whole clown hall of mirrors that, that's always pinging you know, uh, the ego and its imaginary identifications. But I think Guattari is trying to say that it's, He's trying to go further even, I think, and, and say that that's still a little too rigidly structured and, and that the mirror doesn't hold the essence of what's going on when we talk about identifications. And that identification itself is, you know, in the Freudian sense, needs to be hyper-complexified in these different terms of blocks of becoming, right? Because I think that that's, that's a very powerful notion that Deleuze and Guattari come up with in A Thousand Plateaus about how becomings work through blocks and contagion, right? We could even say like Swamp Thing is yeah, virally- Contagion of man's yeah. right. consciousness. And so, yeah, these different blocks of becoming are much more suitable for Guattari's diagramming of, of the machinic unconscious precisely because they don't work through nostalgias and memories and these other things these these are the things that re-territorialize swamp thing right, right. The, the human elements that he that he unconsciously for lack of a better word that he imaginably clings to right that he invests his 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 little kernel of desire in these false images or whatever you want to call them these instead of these blocks of becomings he's trying to get back these memories trying to hold on to these memories and use those as a basis for his becoming, but they are actually stumbling blocks, not to pun in a different sense. They're not the true blocks of becoming that, that we see that now he can be engaged with after he's kind of confronted nihilism. What is Swamp Thing doing when he's trying to vegetate and go back to the swamp and become swamp, sort of lose all drive? What is it? I mean, you could call that death drive, but I think it's more interesting to, you know, to, to call it a confrontation with you know, this nihilistic night to no longer be anything at all. I think this little, this other little passage from Chaosmosis might have a little bit of relevance to, or this is something that kind of stood out for me when reading it. And he's talking about these, something about an alternative between being and being or being and nothingness. Not only is I an other, but it is a multitude of modalities of alterity. Here we are no longer floating in the signifier, the subject, and the big other in general. And then he talks a little about the heterogeneity of components, verbal, corporeal, spatial, etc. Not only is the I an other, but a multitude of modalities of alterity. Wow, right. that, that would a phrase for, for one thing, like, holy shit. This, well, this even reminded me too of, of Sterner a little bit in the kind of creative mm. nothing 
which I think, you know, even overlaps a lot with Lacan just because of their kind of shared Hegelian root. But I is an other. I don't know. That's a, that's very, that's quite interesting. You know, if you're a Frenchman in the 20th century, you have to, you know, have a brush with Rambo and the, it's playing off of that. I is another, that famous line. But yeah, multitude of modalities of alterity. That's one of his ways of, you know, that's another way of phrasing non-totalizable intensive multiplicity, right? That's right. a phrase that I, I, I yeah, really yeah. enjoy. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that that's, that's a great way to talk about Swamp Thing, right? That especially, thing, especially when he takes on those, I mean, literal rhizomatic properties where he can appear at any point within space. Literal, like he's talking about Guattari here, talking about corporeal, you know, verbal and spatial. Well, he yeah. has all of those <laughs> abilities and, as well. And I think it's interesting that as a multitude of modalities of alterity or as, you know, non-totalizable intensive multiplicity, he's not, something literally is not a body defined by its organs, right? Whether we want to, you know, call it BWO, I, I don't think it necessarily adds anything, but it's interesting, right, that it, that Swamp Thing never was a unity, never was a totality that was defined by by these organs. These organs have nothing to do with with what Swamp Thing is, right? It is this, I mean, one aspect of it is what we talked about with leotard libidinal economy is this notion of, of jouissance, right? That there's, there's almost, or, or really you could go back to Sartre and nausea. There's like too much, you know, in, in nausea, when the narrator is, he's sitting in a park and he's looking at a tree and the tree just overwhelms his consciousness. It's, it's too much. There's too much tree. There's always too much being, and I think that there's something to that, right? That, that like this confrontation of, you know, this identity crisis as we've been calling it and, and this sort of unmitigated becoming plant that has no boundaries, neither subjective nor personal nor whatever. It is a type of beyond. So beyond of the pleasure principle, beyond of the reality principle, it is this sort of, it is the fantastic, right? It is this sus suspension of the, this wavering between the psychological and the supernatural that, that doesn't have a termination point, right? It is no, there's, I mean, in that sense, it's constantly metastable and it's that, you know, it's, it's that indefiniteness, I think that, that makes it sort of have aspects of, of jouissance and it's precisely that, that he wants to give up. Yeah. Right. But it, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it seems predestined, not just externally, but also internally, that even the desire to vegetate and become swamp is impossible too. Right. Right. He is, he is this life beyond death. He is the undead, as Zizek, that's one of his favorite things to kind of talk about, you know, in terms of Dostain, in terms of Suissance and these, these other Lacanian concepts. He sort of is this, it's that, you know, that notion that, even in death there, <laughs> what dreams may come. That's the worry, right? Is that you obviously have the hope that after death, you will enter some blessed regime, but there's, there's also this worry that after death, there won't just be nothing. <laughs> that there'll, be, there'll still be like too much. It'll, you know, even after death, you don't, you don't find the supposed peace, which is really just a kind of a, a symptom of, of that, that inertia that he feels within his 
that trauma that, that, that provides us inertia as a, kind of as an excuse to, to not go on when he doesn't have that choice. It seems to be taken away from him, which is why he's saying like, you know, I tried to become human. They took that away from me. I tried to become monster, tried to become plant. These, these different stages of becoming, he says they've been taken away from him. But again, I think it's more that it gets back to that, you know, that quote you said you had before about the modalities multiplicity of modalities of alterity, right? That, that, that is these phases of becoming that are heterogeneous and, you know, not synchronized. This is, you could say it's like the embodiment of, of the life drive, right? And it's plasticity. Last thing I'll mention is, and we don't even necessarily have to get too far into it, but I just want to throw it out there before I forget something that I've thought about, which is kind of a little bit off topic in terms of this, but somewhat relevant is one thing that's quite interesting about Moore is the repetition of having a character that is sort of this demigod that is beyond human. There's an inhuman, there's a constant repetition of this inhuman character. And and Swamp Thing can be viewed, I think, as a sort of proto Dr. Manhattan, who is this char- this figure of the demigod par excellence but also calls back to, you can see this kind of development because one of Moore's earlier works was Miracle Man, which is this sort of super, it's kind of a Superman thing, or even, I mean, if you're familiar with Shazam, it's a very similar, there's a whole intellectual property thing that I want to get into, but like (laughs) with that, but if you're interested, it's, it's kind of somewhat interesting, but it's sort of this dualism. And this would be even interesting psychoanalytically is you have like this normal man, but Miracle Man also in, inhabits his body. And when he says the magic word, Kimura, Miracle Man comes out and takes over the body and so forth, which I think is kind of the seeds of this, this inhuman demigod that Moore is constantly repeating throughout the body of his work in different ways. And well, yeah, the, sort the, of that. That notion of, of the power of language, which we've talked about a little bit here, which we could obviously spend more hours on. I mean, that's that's evident in these issues. And we do see that word, Kamora, come back. And instead of... I think it's like Katara or something in, in this actual piece. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Kamora, right? Because the, the kid thinks it's that they're misspelling camera, but it's it's some sort of... It opens some sort of portal to a to a dimension that the monkey king the, the, that feeds off fear enters the world into, right? It is... So instead of the magic word incarnating this miracle man or this de- this deification this good avatar it's this avatar of evil right it opens up this evil world k-a-m-a-r-a kamara so, so close so it's, it's just a variation right gotcha. interesting i wonder there's probably an etymological Moore is very i mean he does epic amounts of studying and references so there may be some actual occultish or magic word that he's drawing for both of those as an inspiration and taking some artistic license there. But that actually does make sense because Etrigan very much so, it's the same thing, right? It's like the split subject between Etrigan and Jason Blood. That's the exact same thing as Miracle Man and forget what the actual human name is. It's interesting that the word camera comes from the Greek word kamara, the same word and it's anything with an arch cover. It's a vaulted chamber. It's a vault, right? So mm-hmm. you're opening the vault 
if you will, you're opening the what's been repressed or what's been locked away, right? When when they when they spell that out playing uh, the Ouija yeah. game. Oh, that's good. Right? Oh, yeah, that's they, so good. they they open the vault. Whereas I guess you know, uh, and it, you'll have to figure out later what the word is with Miracle Man, or, or if it's a play on the same variation. That's right? what I'm Maybe. saying. I think that yeah. probably is makes sense. I know for sure it's Kimora. It's K I M O R A. I mean, but that would be phonetically. Right. Yeah, exa- right. yeah, exactly. So it, it is, it is very interesting. I think that that's, um, that's, that's a good. Komoda actually. Sorry. Oh, okay. Komoda. Well, sorry. we'll have to figure out at a later point. <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to see if that has etymological roots too. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised to Right. Cause it does feel like. There's gotta be, it's too, it's too close. Right. Especially the, the, that little one, one body inhabiting inhabited by two contradictory right. Gotcha. Consciousnesses or beings or becomings or what have you. Unless you had anything to add, I feel like we did a hell of a job. You know, if we if, if we did more on it, I would just leave the the listener and you with something I, I, I told you, I think last night, I think I told you about that one of the themes I see here in volume one, in my mind, it, it reminds me most of Frankenstein. The associative link is obviously that monsters, right? But right. But, but one of the themes in Frankenstein is Frankenstein, the doctor, the mad scientist, his crime was not, his crime in itself wasn't the creation. It was the abandonment and bastardization of his monster, which is really what fuels the monster for this search for revenge against his maker. And one of the themes is whenever there is about to be a consummation, whether it be of marriage, sex, whatever, the monster comes and breaks it up. Right. And I feel like you see some of the same elements of, you know, coitus interruptus or coitus for preventus with not in the body, not in the, (laughs) not in the avatar of Swamp Thing itself, but in the sort of the libidinal glue of this world, right? That there's that, you know, we could look at the different relationships that the three I, I think of most Besides part of what we talked about with Swamp Thing and Abby, right, which, as I said, seems to be erotically charged, and yet that is not the, it's not like Swamp Thing has been friend-zoned or something. Anyway, there you have the, in the first issue, you have Dennis and Elizabeth, Elizabeth. Tremaine, right, and the only thing holding them together is Crisis, which is why she rebuffs him and is like, she says literally, like, we'd be tearing each other's throats out within a month or something, because he's trying to get her to come come away with him. And then there's obviously Abby and, and her husband, Matt, who both seem to be prone to paranoid delusions and, and they have their own emotional issues. Uh, and then it's one of the last issues, or maybe issue 26, when you have the couple who are at the estate sale and the wife, instead of buying lawn furniture like the husband wants, she buys this ginormous swordfish right to hang in the in their i guess in their living room and it ends up being an, uh, an object of murder predicted by etragon jason blood and, and they have a relationship that shows marital life itself in this world or at least the glimpses we get of it to be fraught with these with this ugliness right and they're they're nagging at each other and saying just stupid, nasty things to each other. And Jason Blood himself says within a year, you're going to be in jail for, for manslaughter, which 
which I took as you're going to kill your wife <laughs> um, <laughs> because of, because of how nasty they were being to each other. Right. But in fact, it's, you know, it's another little minor, minor character womanizer, right? Because the, the guy that gets killed, the little insurance salesman, we learn from Jason Blood, you know, this devil figure that he, not only is he cheating on his wife with five different women, but he like, he like waves it in front of her face, right? And almost gets off on that, right? That, and so marital life in these seven episodes or these seven issues is already haunted, right? By, by its own kind of monster, its own kind of Frankenstein monster. Right. Oh, nice. That would be a whole yeah, yeah. different bag, but I just want, I think that'd be like one of those meta themes, one of those overarching themes that we didn't touch upon that I, that was kind of like circling in my head, you know, with, with all the Freud and Lacan I've been reading lately, like it's, it's it was hard not to, <laughs> yeah, to, yeah. to sniff some of that out. And I just, I guess I think that's part of, that's some of the darkness, that's some of the mood, the atmosphere that kind of overhangs these, right. these issues is that married life or just couple life, in, like there's no sexual relationship, right? <laughs> it's like, or no sexual relation, right? Is Lacan would say, right? It, but it's, but it's taken in this, you know, this eerie, it's, it's, it's an eeriness to yeah. it. Yeah, I was thinking that in terms of Abby and, and Matt earlier too. Right. Yeah, I, I think this has been a really great um, exploration of, of the swamp, the saga of the swamp thing. Definitely highly recommend it. Taylor, you might be able to speak to you. That might have one last thing I can post to you real quick, and then we can close out. Yeah. Is coming to this being someone who wasn't a comic book reader or an avid reader, let's say, no, I wasn't and coming uh, to no, it completely cold. What was that like? You know, my, um, my wife asked me something that's uh, talking about Meryl Live. I mean, she, she kind of asked me the same thing. She grew up with comic books. She also played with Barbies and stuff. I mean, she, you know, like, like lots of girls, but she had cousins that she had a cousin who she's still close with Blake. Who's a great guy. You'd love him. Anybody would. And he, he, he got her deep into like Marvel comics and, and, and stuff like that. Now, I, I mean, I did grow up watching some of like the cartoons. I watched the Swap Thing cartoon. I was yeah, telling my as my wife did I, yeah, as yeah. Did um, and I didn't know it was a comic book, you know, as a kid. But I, but I, I never read comics. I mean, I, I remember as a kid having a few comics. I had a Vampirella comic just randomly. Is that her name? Um, I don't even, I'm not. I'm not familiar. I, and I had. Yes. I had. The one comic book I remember ever really looking at and flipping through was The Death of Flash, which I assume is famous in the Flash series. I, you know, like The Death of Superman is, right, I guess. But um, this one was The Flash. And um, I do remember flipping through it a little bit, but coming upon it, I think that one thing that was a barrier to me, and I, and I complained to you a little bit about this, was you know, the very first panels is Swamp Thing being like, oh, my arch nemesis is dead. What the fuck am I going to do? And I'm like, well, I'm like, I don't, I want to know about this. What the hell? But, but once I got over that, and once I really, I think I really started to, I started to modulate my, my internal dialogue. When I, what I mean by that is, it's not a good word for it. The scanning of the lines and putting voices to them and giving them a kind of life that that the art was I let the art take over and be more in the foreground than I normally would when I'm just you know I'm big text brain you know right. word guy so I let the words and the and the art 
sort of enter into a different relationship and let the art speak in its own way, in its mute way, one could say, right? Because it's not speaking, it's showing. And yet at the same time, it is, it is providing a dynamic catalyzer, right? A dynamic energizer for the words. And I think that once I, once I got past the first issue and I got into that famous issue that we talked about, right? The, the anatomy lesson. I think once that I start, started to really immerse myself into that and felt the power of the, of the words and the images, I think that my brain adapted to the medium in a way that, that I couldn't have predicted right beforehand. And once that happened, I, I was hooked. Like, I, I want to see, I want to get volume two, right? Or, or <laughs> so that's something that in the future, I would definitely want to come back to with, with you. And I think that the one... I mean, there's an issue where they make love in a they make love in a in a sense that would be quite. You mentioned that. You mentioned that to me. Yeah, you did mention it, it's partly quasi hallucinatory, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because well, I don't want to. I don't know if I want to. No, no, it's good. I mean, you've already you've already you spoiled it before. It, it would have been a spoil for me because I had almost forgotten yeah. that part. But it, no, uh, you're not spoiling anything. So Swampy grows the, these gourds, and it's funny because earlier on in the volume, he sets it up because there's a a guy, presumably like, kind of like you know what do they call it? like a wook, like a you know what I mean, like a druggy type dude is like you know, hey man, I'm like he's right. hunting for mushrooms Pusher. and shit, and he st- stumbles on one of the Swamp Thing's gourds that's fallen off. And he eats it and has this whole fucking trip. So then he goes back and his wife is dying of cancer and she, he gives it to her and they have this fucking amazing connective, you know, they just sort of dissolve their right. whole subjectivities and kind of merge and, and so forth, which later on at the end of the, the last issue of the volume is the same thing with Abby and, and Swamp Thing. And it's just beautiful. Well, like it, the panels and the art and the writing are just right. magnificent. So I mean, it makes sense and in, in, it makes sense that they would consummate without it being yeah there's no there's no penetrative right it's it it makes sense that it would be in that hallucinatory domain because it's precisely what's been you know as as we see as i was trying to articulate badly you know like that they're there it's obvious that their relationship has this libidinal undercurrent and yet it's that's not the that's not the goal or the aim of their enjoyment and satisfaction of one another yes and so it makes sense that that would take place on a hallucinatory delusional well delusional you know in this technical sense the right. the imaginary uh level and um yeah no that's that's great i mean like as, as i said i think that this inspires in my mind that something we could come back to and i think that i like that you brought some of the guacheria and we'll, we'll have to think about next time we do a volume like this yes planet swamp thing might be i because i haven't gotten i think i so I didn't finish the run, but I think that's later on. That might be something kind of interesting to okay. explore. Okay. Yeah. To. No, that's great. But yeah, I think I think that that sounds like that's a wrap. Thank everyone for checking out the episode. This will be the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and uh, and Taylor Adkins signing off.